Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Michael Dozier, who is a Senior Defined Contribution Advisor Strategist for T. Rowe Price, where he's primarily responsible for driving the increased visibility of T. Rowe Price's investment brand, furthering the firm's position as a thought leader in the retirement arena. He's been in the retirement industry for 30 years and previously held executive positions at Fidelity, Mass Mutual, and Franklin Templeton Investments. On today's episode, Michael shares his insights from T. Rowe Price's 2020 Defined Contribution Consultant Study which included survey responses from 21 consulting firms that work with over 5,500 plan sponsor clients and nearly $4 trillion in assets under advisement. We discuss emerging trends facing retirement advisors like improving and aligning communication with plan sponsor clients, the growing trend towards delegated investment solutions like OCIO and 338 engagements, expanded participant solutions such as financial wellness, student debt, and HSA offerings, and a framework for advisors and plan sponsors to evaluate longevity risk and architect tiered retirement income solutions, spanning areas like distribution methods, in-plan investments, and individualized strategies. And be sure to listen to the end where Michael shares his single most important piece of advice for retirement advisors, which is to evaluate and understand the inherent biases that may exist with existing business models as the industry transitions from a focus on accumulation to decumulation and post-retirement solutions. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You Podcast with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. Michael Dozier, welcome to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thanks, Josh. I'm happy to be here. For the audience that may not know who you are, why don't you give a little bit of background? You, you recently, within the past year and a half or two years, came to, to T. Rowe Price and maybe talk a little bit about kind of your background and what your role is at T. Rowe. Sure. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, about a year and a half ago, I was asked to join T. Rowe Price in a newly created role that was really to take our thought leadership up a level in the advisor sold space of the retirement business. Right. So in the VA world, I help on a sub-advised standpoint, you know, strategize where we're going. In the DC world, I help, you know, from a plan design, investment lineup standpoint, understand where things are going. I try to be responsible for, you know, listening to the marketplace. I'm very active in Washington and the legislative and regulatory conversations. I'm also trying to always listen to our clients, the client advisory boards and to our salespeople, the what they're hearing when they're out in the marketplace and really assess all of that and bring it back in and say, hey, here's the strategy for our retirement business. Happy, happy to be with a firm like T. Rowe. I've been in the industry about 30 years. Uh, I spent uh, the early days of my career with a big record-keeping shop that you probably heard of by the name of Fidelity Investments and then did a little stint with Mass Mutual, and then did about seven years with Franklin Templeton before joining T. Rowe Price. And the interesting thing about those four stops is while they've all been big kind of, I'd say, innovative leaders and players in the retirement space, they've all had a very different DNA. And that's helped me have a very broad perspective of how success is won or lost, especially in the advisor market with business partners, such as the four firms that I've represented. And it's been a, a wide variety of experiences. I've been very, very fortunate in my career to have a 
you know, a good time. At the same time, I've been able to hopefully, you know, influence the retirement system in America in some fundamental way. It's been a, it's been a great journey. Excellent. You know, one of the things we're going to, and you had mentioned, you know, working with intermediaries, so advisors and consultants. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today, which I'm really interested in giving your perspectives on, is your 2020 DC consultant survey that you recently released at T. Rowe Price. And I believe it was the inaugural survey. And Let's just start with this kind of these terms, consultant and advisor, because what we're going to talk about on the episode today is, is I think, really the perspectives of, of you know, both those, those types of players in the space. But those terms often get used interchangeably. That may or may not be kind of an accurate approach. So why don't you maybe tee up what you see as the difference at T. Rowe Price between the consultant space and the advisor space and whether or not those lines are, are blurring more now than maybe five or 10 years ago. Sure, Josh. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start because it's something I thought a lot about. So, you know, there, there's one of the things I love about T. Rowe Price is our long-term dedication to the retirement industry. And we've got some very, very thoughtful business partners in our institutional business up in the mega market that really devised this survey and came up with the strategy. And as we were talking about how to bring it to market, they were talking to the more traditional, what you'll call consultant sub-segment, I'll call it, because I think there is a blending of the word advisor and the word consultant. And we decided to test it a little bit and just use generically the term consultant more than we used advisor because we were looking to make sure that the people we were talking to in the survey were on the larger end of the market, not dedicated to the mega market, but let's call it the upper end of the mid market through the mega market. We were looking for people that were innovative, that were trying to drive change because we wanted this survey to be about emerging trends, not you know well-established and just, again, regurgitation of existing DC marketplace type of data. You can get that data in a lot of places. So as we had those conversations, I started testing out with especially those kind of boutique DC specialist advisory firms that are playing in the mid-market space and really trying to bring large market offerings down to the mid-market space through aggregation and relationships they're building with firms like T. Rowe Price. So we knew that that overlap was growing. And so we tested it. You know, some advisors, when I use the term consultant, will look at me, I'll call it with the hairy eyeball and say, Is that, are you really talking about me? And sometimes it's clear that, you know, they're, they're just more of a traditional, I'll call it classic financial advisor mentality, even though they might be dedicated to the DC business versus more of the consultant model. And you start pulling apart some of the data in here and you see the consultant business model is clearly different sometimes. We'll touch on things like OCIO and delegated and 338 in a few moments, Josh. That that's where it really starts to show itself in some of the offers. But conceptually, the blending across, especially this middle market space between traditional use of the word advisor and more large market use of the word consultant. I'm trying to just say, hey, the intermediary in question here is you know completely up to yourself to define you. But I'm using the term somewhat generically. And for for the most part, when we talked to the firms we talked to, there were 21 of them that represented 5,500 plans and almost $4 trillion in assets under advisement. Most of them said, yeah, I get it. And I think of myself as a consultant as much as I think of myself as an advisor. Probably less so if you go talk to the large consultants. They probably don't think of themselves as an advisor at all. But they you know, clearly see themselves as consultants. And, you know, I think I, I, I certainly uh, I certainly would agree with that. You know, some of the names of the 21 firms are, you know, the traditional consulting 
companies that you would think about the Mercers and the Aeons or the NEPCs, but, you know, you also have the cap trusts of the world, which, you know, play, if you think about market segment play up market and, and down market, just out of curiosity, what do you feel like the appetite is, or, or do you feel like large consultant, large market players are more interested in moving down market? Or do you think more the mid-market players are interested in moving up market? Where do you think from just the advisory consultant industry in general, where do you, you feel like the, the industry thinks the greatest opportunity moving forward is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Josh. Uh, going in, my assumption was that the stronger force was the consultants coming down market than the mid-market advisors going up market. What I think I've found now between the actual survey itself and then the roadshow I've been on since talking about this with not only those 21 firms in detail, but talking about this with untold other firms, including the branch offices of some of those advisory firms you just mentioned, I think it's pretty equal weighted. I, I think the I, I, going in, I thought the consultants coming down market was just a pure economic necessity. There's only so many billion dollar plus plans. And in order to keep the revenue stream up and to keep the you know the shareholders happy of those large consulting firms, you just had to come down market, and that is clearly happening. I think you know you often see the bottom line being drawn by some of those firms now down into the five hundred and even two hundred and fifty million dollar size plans, maybe even less than that. But man, I tell you, when I started talking to some of those aggregation kind of firms that grew up in the maybe 25 to 50 to maybe even $75 million space, they're, you know, they weren't shy to say, hey, here's where I got a billion dollar plan. Here's where I got a couple of $750 million plans. And I'm, I'm laser focused because I think, you know, when the, the first round of the DOL fiduciary rule was out there, some of these hybrid models, both wealth and retirement coming out of that space gave them some pretty powerful infrastructure for being you know, on both sides of that transaction with the right kind of fiduciary infrastructure. So I think that momentum has just, you know, stayed. I think there's a lot going actually both directions. That's that's great insight. You know, you had mentioned one of my questions was going to be, you know, what were kind of the goals and objectives that you had with launching this survey, one of the things you had mentioned was just kind of a focus on, you know, emerging trends. What, what else? Because there's some really fascinating and I think valuable data within the survey. You know, we'll uh, we'll put uh, put a link to in the show notes, you know, to some of these resources for listeners to find them. But, you know, what was the primary driver for your team? Why, you know, there's a lot of surveys that are out there, you know, why this focus and why now? Yeah. So uh, why this focus and why T. Rowe is definitely seen as a leader in the retirement industry, right? I mean, we are one of the, the big QDIA providers, target date suite providers, and have been for 20 years. But when you started looking at a regular cadence of developing ourselves as a demonstrated thought leader in the retirement space, it was more sporadic, right? The work we'd done to design our target date funds and continue to innovate always led to great conversations with our clients about why we're doing what we're doing and why we continue to achieve at the levels we achieve. But we didn't have a regular cadence of delivering insights kind of bigger in a more consultative way to our clients. And we wanted something that would enable that. So with that first kind of criteria, we then said, where is there less noise in the marketplace versus more? And we realized, while there are a lot of surveys out there, a lot of them are at the plans. A lot of them are at the 
participant level with average account balances. I've worked for firms where we we develop that data, and it's all very helpful. But talking to consultants, which has now evolved into talking to the consultants and the more innovative advisors, there wasn't much out there. There was one, right? And one of the large bond firms off the West Coast had been out there doing this for you know 10 plus years. But other than them, we didn't see much in that space. And we thought, you know, we can match that. And because we also have our ongoing participant research that we do with thousands of participants, retirement savings and spending survey, we thought, well, we can go talk to consultants and we can go look at our data about participants and we can compare and contrast. You see that show up here in the survey somewhat. We also had done some pretty robust research with the pensions and investments organization. Late last year, we even brought some of that in here too. You'll you'll notice these little icons of plan sponsor views and participant views. So you put all that in the you know in the oven and bake it, and it came out pretty strong. So we do think we've got a pretty unique spot here. It is attempting to be on the more innovative large market end is the crystal ball, maybe even for small market advisors just to look and see what's going on and they can decide for themselves what's a short-term concern or opportunity for them versus what's maybe longer term. But it, it does serve as a little bit of a beacon, we hope. And it's it's been out pretty well the first you know six months we've been out talking about it in the marketplace. Yeah, I thought it was interesting overlaying and I thought you did a really good job with it in terms of overlaying kind of perceptions and attitudes of advisors, consultants, and then overlaying that with plan sponsors as well, and then actually mixing in participants versus plan sponsors at times. And, you know, I think one of the things that that came out to me is that in certain areas, there there seems to be pretty consistent alignment, but there also seems to be a divergence at, at times yeah. between what plan sponsors kind of value relative to what per- participants value, but also what plan sponsors and what consultants and advisors, there seems to be a bit a bit of a disconnect. So, you know, one of those, and, and we'll start to dive in, I, I think we, we can certainly talk about some of the delegated or outsourced OCIO 338, kind of the appetite and the environment for that. But even around QDIA, and obviously you had mentioned, you know, T. Rowe Price being one of the, the, you know, the big three from a, from a target date fund standpoint. One of the things that jumped out to me within the survey that was interesting was there seemed to be a disconnect between how advisors, consultants had viewed their clients' approach to assessing the QDIA for their plan relative to what plan sponsors said. And so, you know, 43% of plan sponsors said that they had maintained a consistent approach with their QDIA over the past, you know, call it three or four years, but only 10% of consultants said that. So that's an interesting, there was was quite a bit of a, a divergence there. And wh- why was that? And what do you think are some of the, the potential opportunities that exists to really, you know, one, one of the tough things in the advisory world is you can be doing a great job for clients or you can think that you've checked the box and that, you know, you've, you've, uh, you're in close alignment with what's important to your clients and then find out after the fact that, you know, you, you, you misread the situation and you never want to be in that type of position. So just around QEIA assessment and, and what's, what's happened over the past few years, why do you think there is a divergence from that perspective? Yeah, Josh, I think you picked up on what I perceive as the biggest disconnect between plan sponsors and consultants slash advisors in the entire presentation. I was actually pleasantly surprised to see quite a bit of alignment. I think consultants and advisors have educated plan sponsors over the years quite effectively because I did see a fair amount of alignment. But this was the biggie. 
And, you know, a couple of things. One, I think it's great news for the average advisor or consultant because there's probably value-added work going on that just needs to be better articulated, right? I was actually just listening in on one of those kind of, you know, personal development podcasts a couple of days ago that had a quote about communications and, and one of the fallacies of communication is the perception that it's actually happened and, and how little that actually happens, right? I, somewhere I saw a stat that maybe 20% of what we say actually gets picked up, right? So if that's true, then I think in the course of all of the technical nature between an advisor slash consultant and their plan sponsor client, 20% is probably the most that gets picked up, right? So if you think about it, I think what happens is there's a lot of email-based communication, a lot of in a larger review communication, just talking about technical backdrop type of conversations around how assessments evolve and change, whether the product set that's out in the competitive landscape is changing or the market dynamics are changing, or even something as simple as say a, a product has a hiccup, manager change or something like that. All these different dynamics are that are feeding into this process. Now, you layer on top of that, even with large plans that have bigger, more dedicated benefit staff, whether we're talking on the treasury side or the HR side, they're not often long-term, technically, deeply experienced people that you're interacting with. It's you know more of a junior profile, lots of turnover, lots of people that you know, maybe don't understand it with the level of depth that the advisor or the consultant does. So I think all of those forces are at play that just make it, the signals aren't always picked up. So I, I'm signing it off on that. I do believe the work does happen. I mean, I've talked to enough advisors and consultants over my years that, and the methodologies are getting stronger and stronger, the more rigorous review process and, and thinking about things more deeply, whether it's the behavioral finance components that have been built in over time. And it's, looking at the different ways of assessing risk that have evolved and developed over time. I think it's just a matter of pausing, you know, coming up with maybe a more simple language way of saying, hey, look, every year or 18 months or two years, here's what my firm is doing to reassess your QDIA selection and validate that it's still the right one. I think we just, we sometimes get caught up in our own complexity. Too many multi-syllable words. We like to feel smart, right? I mean, I think the more we could probably simplify that and just, you know, give updated communication, I think the better off our plan sponsor clients. Yeah. You know, it's, I think interesting too. And, and so much is done electronically now that I think there's a lot of the written documentation has probably gone by the wayside in, in more of a, a, a consistent format. And so that, that I think could be an opportunity for, you know, most, most of us want to, you know, work in whether it's PowerPoint or Excel, but a lot of times they don't, that doesn't provide, you know, the context and even, you know, minutes, which we all know is, is a best practice and, you know, probably doesn't get done, you know, good minutes don't get written as much as they should, but certainly there's been much more of a focus on taking minutes, certainly from a fiduciary perspective over the past, call it five to 10 years. But I think there's a real opportunity and, and advisors would be wise to tighten up probably writing more detailed memos. I think there's, you know, I was a history major actually in college. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about history is there's this written record that you can kind of go back to. And so I do think there's an opportunity for, you know, for firms, for advisory firms to probably document some of those, you know, some of those things that have, have either been discussed at a committee level in a more detailed format than just minutes. 
but that can probably provide a really good record actually for clients and a body of work. And also, you know, one of the biggest challenges, especially up market, you had mentioned it, but just in general is you get turnover at the committee level. You get turnover, you know, in the executive executive management function. And, and one of the big challenges, even for us as an advisory firm, is you get clients where there's turnover on the committee and you feel like you have to consistently go back and kind of resell your services or you have to go back and re-educate here are all the things that we've done and whatnot. So that might just be a kind of a little learning point for advisory firms to maybe shift to writing more kind of detailed memos that that provide an opportunity to deep dive into what has been done in a more comprehensive format. And that might, you know, using simple language, but but you know, more than bullet points to kind of provide the context. Couldn't agree more, Josh. I thought the the point on documentation and a, an audit trail, but I think that last comment about just making sure that the language is, you know, simple and direct and less technical, I think we'd all well so. Yeah, you're solving in one, you're solving for risk management. The other, you're solving for, I think, understanding. At the end of the day, a better educated client, a client that you know, has a greater level of understanding is one, they're going to be a better client Two, They're probably going to be a more longer term. They're going to be a more longer term client. And like you said, if the work's getting done, but you're not getting credit for it, that's obviously, that's obviously a problem. You know, one of the things that, that came up as well was, you know, this, this increased interest, especially from the consultant advisor space around outsourced investment solutions. So whether, you know, more upmarket, you know, that often goes by, you know, the acronym OCIO, outsourced, you know, CIO services, I think more down market, the advisor communities, it's probably more commonly referred to as, you know, ERISA 338 services. But really at the end of the day, where the plan sponsor is delegating fiduciary responsibility and authority for selecting and monitoring investments, to an advisor or a consultant. What have you seen? And, and just in looking at the data, you know, it's interesting. Consultants and advisors seem to across the board, you know, I think 0% said that they actually saw a contraction in those services. If, if I remember correctly, and looking at the data, everybody in that survey said that they had seen an increase in that. What do you think is driving that move towards those outsourced delegated services? Yeah, I, I believe the complexity of the overall kind of investment management kind of monitoring and assessment process, and it bleeds off a little bit of the conversation we were just having about that different understanding of the QDI assessment. It's clearly a a world where the situation has forces both pro and the, the negative forces right now against it, which obviously are probably less strong than the positive forces. Every single firm did say they experienced growth in this in this space and expect that to continue. As a matter of fact, let me give you some quick stats there because I know sometimes listeners like to validate those kinds of things. So of the 21 firms we talked to, again, you you said it, all of them said no one said flat, no one said shrink, all of them said growth. 40% of those 21 firms said that their personal expected growth rate year over year was going to be something north of 16%. Fully one quarter or 25% of them said their personal growth rate in that space was going to be something north of 30%, right? So this isn't a little growth. This is a lot of growth, right? So with that backdrop, I'd say the forces that are still working against it, uh, and we and this is in the data comes back from the consultants on behalf of their other plan sponsor clients, but the, the real big drivers that are still stopping 
this from growing even more are just the reluctance to give up control. That was the number one thing that some plants still articulating some concerns over. The second thing was just higher costs, right? We all know as advisors and consultants in this industry, there's a lot of pressure on fees. There have been years. The market's becoming more and more competitive, more and more saturated. We're all looking for ways to maintain a living. To delegate, there's additional services, there's additional responsibilities. It doesn't happen for free. So more often than not, I think there's still a lot of competitive landscape shakeout that's going to happen on the pricing level. But for now, let's just assume there is a layering up of fees for that delegation. And that still concerns plant sponsors because most plant sponsors, especially now after the pandemic and after a potential hit to their you know bottom line as a firm, they don't have extra money they can spend on DC plan administration, but that, that is a concern. And, and just, you know, kind of the ongoing concerns around technical understanding and capabilities, right? Whether it's volume of administrative responsibilities purely or understanding some technical, you know, work that needs to happen and, and just handing that off. We know in ERISA and looking at it from a lawyer's perspective, you can never fully delegate your fiduciary responsibilities to plant sponsor, but you can, like, the 338 language is very clear. You can share that with someone and get them to fully understand what processes they're managing for you. So I think, you know, I think all of that is kind of working against it. If you think about the forces that are that are supporting it, so these are obviously where I think most of the momentum is. Fiduciary risk, right? That is the driver. And we've got another flurry of lawsuits out there that seem to have kicked up late last year, mostly around cost, mostly around making sure you're managing, you know, the expenses that investments are being asked to bear. But that that lawsuit concern and just general fiduciary risk is the biggest driver of why this doesn't pick up speed. Transferring that responsibility for those technical aspects that they just know that they, no matter how big the benefit staff is on the treasury or the HR side in a large plan, they're still on that level of expertise with most advisory consultant firms that they don't have. That's a big driver. And, it, and just thinking about the shifting of just volumes of responsibility back to the administrative tasks side of things. Those three things are what's driving people to kind of take a step back and say, do I have the capacity? Do I have the technical capability? If the answers to those two are no, and I've got an escalated concern over fiduciary risk and or lawsuit protection, there's the drivers. So that, so one of the, the, the interesting questions, so that's the perspective and the way, you know, it's often positioned to plan sponsors. And so that's that's kind of how we frame it uh, in the advisory world. I, I actually have, have seen more and more advisors and consultants actually want, there's a perception that there's actually less work in some ways with being a 338 than than more work that that the frequency with which you need to meet with the committee is actually decreased as opposed to increased and and with firms trying to you know profitability is obviously is something that is is important so one of the questions i have is where do you think that growth is coming from for those for those firms who responded do you think that is new engagements right new not previous clients plan sponsors that are becoming clients and being you know call it outsourced clients or delegated clients or do you think that growth is actually advisory firms going back to existing clients that may have been in more of a 321 arrangement and saying hey you know what let us move you over into this 
338 and you know here are the reasons potentially why where do you think that growth's coming from is it is it you know new and organic or do you think it is more of a shift of the existing client base and from an advisory firm perspective i think the thought is if there is hey i only have to meet with my clients maybe two times a year instead of four times a year which means that i can you know even if i don't charge higher fees i can create internal capacity to add more potential clients and grow top line revenue. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely heard. So starting with your first point about does it actually become less work or less administration? I've heard that a lot. I think that, you know, you've got to look at the compensation regimes here and what they're compensating you for. Some of that could be just volume of work. Some of that actually could be the assumption of that risk and managing that responsibility from an overarching standpoint. And if you as an advisor or consultant can find a more efficient way to do that inherently by the design of your offer, more power to you. And I don't think that anyone would argue that. Not everyone makes that case, but there's enough that I've seen that do. And I think the firms that are more inherently designed to be fiduciary responsible. So I've talked to several firms that they're percent of their business is 338 is the vast majority, right? And I think those people just have an inherent offer that is designed to be efficient and effective and hopefully manage risk. So I do believe that that is is definitely at play. I don't have empirical data on where it's coming from. I think it's all over the board, again, on the history of the firm in question, running all the way up into those large market consulting firms, right down into the middle market from an advisory standpoint. I think some firms have jumped on the delegated services bandwagon aggressively and early. I talked to many that do the vast majority of their business and their default offer is right into the 338 setup. I've talked to many that are you know, primarily 321. I've talked to some that are only 321, don't want to get into the 338 fray, let's call it. But I, 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 those are few and far between. I do see a lot of firms that have historically been 321 primarily and are now starting to shift over to 338. So, you know, I, I think, again, I think it's situational according to the, the history of that firm. But I think everybody might be coming from a different spot on the ice. You know, I like to use the old, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not where it is now analogy of of hockey. And, and I think that a lot of people are trying to find the puck heading towards it, but they're coming from a variety of places on the X. One other thing I would add is kind of, you know, where, where is it headed from a, what does the product offering look like? And this is where the data might be skewed toward the consulting model and the large market firm. But what we saw loud and clear with these 21 firms, I think to the tune of 63% of them and 57% of them respectively, what does that OCIO primary offer look like? And it's going into the space of replacing off-the-shelf target date funds with custom target date solutions. Now, let me let me play that out a little bit. There's two variations on that. One of the models I saw was what I'll call the whole enchilada model, which is the firm was going to do a custom target date fund all the way from multi-manager selection to the glide path design to the ongoing administration and assessment of all the asset managers that are within that construct. The second, but almost as popular, was just slicing off a glide path design and selling the glide path and then letting that get overlaid either onto the existing lineup of the plan or to some other construct that may be created separately. 
those two were loud and clear the biggest options as far as where these firms were looking for some of that OCIO 338 type of deployment, what the product offering looks like. Now, that said, some of these firms that are more traditionally mid-market advisors, I often had them, you know, throw up a stop sign and give me the hairy eyeball and say, yeah, not us, you know. We're not going to be able to recreate the process and the structure and the advancement and thinking that happens in a shop like Hero. 20 years of target date design and constant innovation. We're just going to keep shopping for the best of what's available. And that will be how we do our fiduciary responsibilities. But there, that, it, that was what we heard. And then that was a little bit of a counterpoint we also heard as we delivered this data. That's actually a really interesting perspective. And, and like a lot of things, and kind of the next topic I want to dive into for a couple of minutes is going to be wellness. Um, and I think it's a similar approach but before we get there. Call it 338. Like that could take on a lot of different forms. What does that look like? Are you a 338 for the entire plan level where you're selecting, right, all the individual asset class fund, every fund in the plan where you're taking on discretion to select for selection and monitoring? Or is that still, hey, we'll be a 321 at the plan level, but we're going to focus as a 338 more around whether it's target date or whether it's, you know, whether it's managed accounts? You know, I've seen obviously, you know, I had Todd Lacey from Stadion, which is a managed account provider, and you see Morningstar now. So you're starting to see some of the plumbing around some more of these kind of personalized managed accounts. But there's a lot of different flavors from that perspective from an advisor. You could literally just select a Stadion or a Morningstar and they do everything. Or, you know, you can actually give them your own glide path, you know, and the selection of funds. Or you can say you do the glide path and we'll just select and monitor the fund. So I think that's the other the other challenge and, and is what does that look like? What does that offering look like? And then, you know, within the marketplace, and this creates challenges for, I think, advisors and consultants is because there's no consistent framework of what does it mean to be OCIO 338, it could take all these different flavors. Very few plan sponsors actually can, you know, they can separate the wheat from the chaff and, and kind of understand it. So it's it seems like there's a lot of fragmentation in what exactly that means and probably will continue to I don't see that fragmentation getting fixed anytime soon. No, I actually see it probably getting a little bit more noisy before it calms down because this is a very, very hotly contested as the growth expectations that I just articulated earlier demonstrate. You get this much of the market that's that focused on this opportunity, and it's only going to grow, which means the variety of offers, whether it be the stadium example, and I, Todd's a great guy. He and I shared a stage at FI360 a couple of years ago. He's, he's Stadium's clearly got its uh, eye on the ball. you got those fully bundled kind of total outsource solutions like he and Morningstar and others have. You've got other more laser shot right into the QDIA or right into a managed account that many firms are moving. And even the definition of QDIA and managed account and the blending of those with that idea of the dynamic model, that's all changing too. So I I think you're spot on. I think it's going to get noisier and it's going to be a great opportunity for advisors and consultants to help plan sponsors sort out the noise, separate the wheat from the chaff. Some of them are solid offers. Some of them are a little more squishy. And, and figure that out before it settles and maybe the marketplace starts to tear and kind of look a little bit more normalized. It's fairly early on. If you think about managed accounts as an example, FE's been out there for 
20, 30 years where they manage to count off her. But what that looked like 20 years ago and the stuff that's coming to market now are night and days, pricing levels and just automation and simplicity. So we've got a lot of competitive forces that are going to continue to make this a noisy space for the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a binary, you know, either or approach. I think it can be a both end. And I think that that is ultimately, you know, I think that the, the opportunity for advisors and consultants and quite frankly, record keepers is, you know, how do you deliver sophistication and optionality to plan sponsors and participants, but sophistication in a simplistic form. So I, I, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, Hey, we're going to rip out and get rid of a off the shelf target date fund for a managed account. You know, maybe there's a tiering approach where, you know, from everywhere from, you know, a total do it yourself or where there's, you know, there's asset class funds and, you know, what we've seen a trend. And I think this is pretty consistent across the industry is, you know, 20 years ago, you saw smaller menus and then you saw the, the kind of expansion of fund menus and more off options. And then with a lot of behavioral finance research and evidence, you've seen kind of a, a core menu moving back to starting to shrink more, but the increase in tiering. So maybe there's asset class funds. And right now, most plans are asset class funds and target date funds, but maybe that tiering is asset class funds and target date funds, and then more of a personalized kind of managed account solution and, you know, retirement income, which we'll talk about in a few minutes as well. So I do think the opportunity exists and where as an industry, we have to do a better job of, you know, figuring out and sourcing the right solutions and creating more optionality. Because I think that's part of what the data says as well is kind of a one size fits all approach it is not that attractive to anyone. So I think there's options to create tiering and, and, and the way that we frame some of these options. And I think we have to do a better job within, within the industry. Very briefly, wellness. So wellness is kind of the, the, the topic du jour. And I've been saying this for a while on a couple of podcasts and then some art, you know, in, in, in some interviews is that, you know, I think plan sponsors, especially in light of 2020, are kind of fatigued with fees, funds and fiduciary, even though those things are still actually incredibly important. But the thing that everybody wants to talk about is wellness. And so how from the survey, like what did you see? It was interesting. It looked like for me, wellness still critically important. Plan sponsors say it's important. Consultants, advisors say it's important, but uh, was not the most important thing. Is that true kind of from the from the data where there are other kind of higher priority areas really moving forward from an emerging trend standpoint? But then in light of that, if that's the case, where do you see these consultants, advisors shake out on the, the wellness landscape? There's a couple of layers to the answer there. So financial wellness showed up in two ways in the survey. First of all, you got to remember, the field on this just before the pandemic struck. And then we went back into the field to validate some things after the pandemic struck. So our timing was, I'd love to say it was a brilliant strategy, but it was just dumb luck with our timing. When we started asking those questions post the CARES Act, right? So that was March 27th. We started asking some questions of these firms in April. You know, what, what was going on in their minds? What was being impacted by the pandemic, the coronavirus, and ultimately the CARES Act? You know, the in April and May, you know, the ostrich strategy was going on across the board. You know, people just kind of stuck their head in the sand. They were trying to deny reality. A lot of the business administration tasks of fund reviews and, and changes to plan lineups, clearly, if not the brakes flat out being hit, 
at least the foot was off the gas. They were focused on getting those coronavirus-related distributions implemented and the loan repayment suspensions implemented and the increased loan limit uh, opportunities were being implemented. But what was showing was as advisors and plan sponsors were trying to deal with the fastest 30% drop we'd ever seen in the S&P 500 in March and April, people needed help, right? Plan sponsors and participants were screaming for help. Plan sponsors, how do I manage my costs and control what I'm coughing up in my plan? For participants, it took the shape of wealth. They weren't asking, how do I continue to save for retirement? They were like, crap, I just got furloughed. How do I you know, make ends meet? What, what options do I have with my financial life in general? And that took the shape of wellness, right? So a lot of these offers, whether they were digital online offers or more financial consulting directly with it, either through an 800 number or through somebody that they could call on, those spiked through the roof. 200 plus percent data points I'd heard from many of the advisory firms and consultants we talked to. So, you know, there was a new driver that was very highly motivated of financial wellness coming front and center again because people just knew that they weren't living the right financial lives and they wanted help. And so the reach was well beyond saving for retirement. So that's how it showed up first in the survey. And, and I think that that's the, the classic silver lining in the storm cloud to me. I think the fact that people, unfortunately, for many of the wrong reasons, got a real big motivation to do something about it. Now people are and sponsors. And I've even heard some advisory and consulting firms say their business has grown throughout the summer and the fall because they did have such a strong financial wellness offering. I do think that's something we need to think long and hard about right now. That said, you you asked if it was the biggest thing they were thinking about. And we asked the question in two ways. We asked them to think about what are your biggest growth opportunities from an investment services standpoint? And we asked them to talk about their biggest... Uh, growth opportunity from a non-investment services standpoint. And on the non-investment services standpoint, this was the biggest growth opportunity. The specific stats we see were that 25% of these firms today had some kind of design or evaluate a financial wellness offering capability, but 58% expected that to be different and that would be something they would offer in the future. So right, almost a tripling, somewhere between a doubling and a tripling of these firms focusing on financial wellness as their lead growth opportunity, non-investment related. Just to close the gap there on the investment side, the two biggest things that came up, we've already talked about them both, was retirement income solutions and managed accounts. Those were the two biggest on the investment side, but financial wellness offerings was the biggest on the non-investment side. And what do you think in terms of in, in talking to those firms and, and trends, you know, the, the again, wellness, what is financial wellness? You ask 10 people, you get 10 different, you know, descriptions of what that looks like. And clearly, I, I would say T. Rowe is unique or maybe unique is not a good word because unique means that, you know, no one, no one else is like you. But but in, uncommon, I think, in the fact that you guys do not appear to be trying to build out a direct financial wellness offering as opposed to quite frankly a lot of the other record keepers that are out there you know obviously fidelity is is an example really aggressive everybody's trying to kind of own the participant experience you have empower that just spent a billion dollars to buy personal capital and so you know a lot of the record keepers and this is obviously a challenge you know there's there's kind of this frenemy thing going on in the industry, right? You've got got record keepers now that are wanting to kind of own the participant wellness experience. You've also got 
advisors and consultants though that are saying because hey we think this is a big growth opportunity and you certainly can develop really good relationships with with your clients through wellness what do you see as kind of the trend the strategy are are you know 25 percent say that they have some type of capability is that more of a consulting like hey we'll help you evaluate a plan sponsor evaluate the various financial wellness solutions that are out there or are you seeing more uh, advisory firms and consultants saying you know what we're going to actually build this in-house we're not going to be a consultant and help kind of select and monitor the way that we would investment options we're actually going to build this in-house own the process and deliver it to clients and effectively start to compete with you know those record keepers that are trying to offer a financial wellness uh, solution too so what do you see? How are the, the 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 sands shifting from that perspective? Yeah, that's great, and I appreciate your uh, unique slash uh, uncommon comment about T Row. I will be very you know transparent and upfront with you. We just like the other firms you've mentioned. You know, we, we, we're always thinking about our capabilities broadly speaking across direct to investor, right through to the advisor sold, the intermediary sold marketplaces. But what we have not lost sight of is the importance of those relationships at the intermediary level. So we will always come to the table in a very clear cut way about what our client in question means, right? So that's why you probably see us talk less about it, maybe less high profile press releases kind of stuff. But you know, we want to make sure that if someone like one of our clients that's an advisory firm needs some help with some subcomponent on the financial wellness front that we we have some value we can bring to the table. So what your comment to me is an estimate that I think we've got our rules of engagement right. We're going to make sure that on that frenemy, you know, continuum that we're much more on the friendly side than on the enemy side. Um, I, I think and that was my, I, and, and to, to be fair, and I, I appreciate you pointing that out. I, I wasn't trying to say that, that T-Row isn't focused on the participant experience and whatnot, but it is more of rules of engagement. And it, it feels like with the approach you're taking, you know, there's less blurred lines and more delineation between, you know, how do we kind of work collectively for the good of clients as opposed to possibly stepping on one another's toes, yeah. you know, in, in certain situations. Yeah, no, no, thank you for clarifying there, Josh. But yeah, you you and I were on the same page. I, I was just reaffirming that, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity here for all of us. So let's get together, right? I mean, like, you know, the one thing I think is interesting on the financial wellness front. So to answer your question, I think, you know, again, everybody's coming from a different point on the ice, but the consulting firms, I think, are thinking about them as consulting opportunities, helping them evaluate and design and pick from the marketplace. I think some of the more historically, you know, let's call it the emergence of wealth and retirement, some of those more boutique shops that are coming out of the mid-market space are building out a, you know, a proprietary platform and they want that to be a nucleus of how they compete moving forward. And I think if they do it well, there's already proof that some firms are, are benefiting from that right now. So I do, I do believe you've got both happening and they're converging. I've even seen some announcements coming from some of the larger consulting firms. You showed a couple of the record-keeping platforms that have made big investments or, or articulated it. I think that's happening with some of the consulting firms too, but that's a little bit more of the exception rather than the rule. So I think that, you know, the competitive forces are coming from kind of all different directions. I think there's, again, just like the fiduciary offers, I think there's going to be a lot of noise as this sorts out. There's going to be a lot of different ways to solve financial wellness. One of the things I thought was interesting in the survey data, we did identify 
two very specific opportunities under the big banner of financial wellness. And I, I think your comment was right. You said you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. Probably 100 people, you get 100 different answers. But there are some things that have traction. In the large end of the market, because of the Abbott Labs letter a year or so ago on student debt repayment and potentially even reallocating some 401k matching dollars to help you know, pay off student debt because that's what's front of mind for your younger participants, that's got traction. Right? That is that is here to stay, and I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in that space, and I think that it will come down market. I think we've already seen some early signs that it's starting to come down market a little bit, but it's kind of a mega market offer right now. That's one. The other is HSAs. I know HSAs are old hat, but you know I think a lot of firms, both plan sponsors and advisory firms, have been a little bit slow to get super aggressive at really building HSAs fundamentally into the broader financial wellness offer because I think people were worried that the S in HSA was still being perceived as a health spending account rather than a health savings account. And if you look at where the first generation of HSAs came from, the bank led to short-term instruments for where that money was held. It's not surprising we wound up where we did. But now that more firms yeah. are thinking more holistically and more long-term about HSAs, people are trying to change that S to what it really was in the letter of the law, which is a health savings account. And they're putting more long-term investment solutions sitting right there, either the same ones that are in the DC plan or some that are similar, so that people can make the right long-term move with their money. We're starting to see a big inflection point hit where the more you give an investment menu, in addition to just that cash account, people are holding longer, people are saving more, and we're seeing a huge inflection point as far as assets being accumulate, accumulated in HSAs. And I just think because of the triple tax-free nature and because of how healthcare is going to be everyone's largest expense, whether you're talking at a plan sponsor level or you're talking at a participant level, it, it has to become a dominant part of a financial wellness offer, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's interesting just in terms of the HSA. I, I That's one of those things. And this happens a lot in the industry, at least from my perspective, is you things get traction and they get talked about. And they get talked about more kind of like the future tense. Because when you look at reality, you know, health HSAs, the vast majority of assets, like you said, it's more of an emergency fund for health expenses that people are using it funding it this year and, you know, using it when they have expenses, you know, call it next year or even within the same year. And there's not, there's not a lot of excess to be able to kind of invest long-term. Certainly if you're higher, you know, net worth, if you're higher income and you've got, you're not living kind of, you know, you've got margin within your, your personal financial savings, the tax, you know, the triple tax-free nature is, I mean, it's the most powerful retirement planning tool there is. I think where one of the innovations that's going to need to happen in the industry, and quite frankly, it's going to be driven by folks like T. Rowe Price on the record keeping side is, you know, how to deploy technology so that, you know, if I am a participant and let's say I can max out, you know, I have, I, you know, I, I can contribute meaningful amounts to save, whether for retirement or for healthcare, you know, do I contribute easily do I contribute to my 401k plan, max out my matching, and then shift my dollars into HSA, max out my HSA, and then easily be able to shift back to saving back in the retirement plan. And so it's more of like a sequence 
of events. That's a hard thing to do right now mechanically. If I'm a participant, you know, I got to create a, you know, a reminder, an outlook to tell me, okay, I'm going to, you know, max out my, my, you know, my, my match on this date. And I need to like stop participating or reduce my contribution because then I got to put it into my HSA. So I do think there's some opportunities over the next few years. The, the user experience as a participant to be able to marry those two types of accounts together, in my opinion, from what I've seen is still a bit lacking. And the, the, the more that we can help uh, simplify and streamline and operationalize that user experience so it's easy to be able to you know, sequence those contributions I think would be really, really helpful. So, yep. yeah, I couldn't agree more, Josh. And I think that, in my mind, you know, that simplicity of the engagement model at the participant level definitely needs some innovation. That, to me, then leaps us to that next topic that I know we've been thinking about, which is retirement income. Because I think until we figure out how to make the experience for older investors saving for retirement and ultimately pivoting and living in and spending and getting that paycheck replacement in retirement, if we don't have that same level of simplicity to how that user model and user experience is going to work, then we'll continue to be like we are there. We talk about it. We talk about it. We talk about it. We've been talking about retirement income solutions and plan for the 30 years I've been in this business. And it's still, you know, literally on full digits as far as plans that have done anything material. We figure that out. I think that we, we are at a point where we can see some inflection. Well, you guys have done some really good work on that end. So let's shift in and let's talk a little bit about retirement income solutions. And again, what does that look like? And it's not, you know, I think the traditional thought, and if you think about the SECURE Act and guaranteed income, it's, you think, you know, annuities, but that's only kind of one tool in the toolbox. And you guys have actually put together, I think, a really good framework, which again, I'll I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, but really kind of uh, this, this, call it like a retirement income solution framework that that spans you know everything from kind of operational distribution methods that that are kind of hardwired into the plan operationally to you know in type in plan types of investments to you know specifically retirement income generating investments and then more individualized strategies and you've got a really good kind of spectrum talk a little bit about kind of that that framework that you guys have developed because i found it really helpful as an advisor in terms of creating kind of the spectrum or the landscape. So maybe talk a little bit about that framework that you've created, but specifically, how should advisors be using that framework to engage committees and plan sponsors to start thinking about, you know, how do we we redesign these plans from being primarily accumulation focused vehicles to more of a, you know, a decumulation, a decumulation vehicle. And one of the things that came up in the data, which was really interesting, was there seems to be a bifurcation, really large plans, call it that half a, you know, billion dollar and up, seem to have a much higher appetite or a much higher interest in creating a way to keep assets in the plan post-retirement than kind of down market, though I do think there's still a strong appetite. More and more plan sponsors are, are shifting their opinions in terms of, hey, how do we keep more assets in the plan once people retire so that their, you know, their relationship with us doesn't necessarily end the day that they separate from service. Yeah, boy, there's, so there's wrapped up a whole bunch of different questions. There, so, <laughs> yes, uh, you did. Boy, I think I have. 
I think I counted five or six questions in there. No, th- this is my so favorite. Talk about the frame, let's start with the framework. Let's talk, let's yeah. talk, about, the, talk about the framework and describe what you guys have put together as kind of a working model. Yeah, let me, if I can, Josh, just because it's front of mind to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up three contextual things and then we'll jump into the framework. So the three contextual things are, if you recall earlier, I mentioned from an investment services standpoint, these 21 firms, which are directing $4 trillion in assets under advisement, said the biggest growth area that they're looking at is retirement income solutions and plans. So just, you know, let that, I'll just leave that right there and let that germinate for a while in your brains. If you got that much market, focus that much on it, it, it could be different this time because they are thinking about it differently. The next thing I would say, we had done some analysis over with our record-keeping platform. We went our record-keeping platform associates to say, hey, look, as participants are moving from active to retired, the status is changing on the retirement plan, what are you observing happen? Not survey data, but actual observed behavior changes. And this data is in, in both the survey results and in our retirement income uh, materials that you're going to make available. The, the change is noticeable, right? So starting in 2016, as participants were switched over to retired status, we asked the question, one year, two year, and three years later, where's the money, right? So in 2016, the retirees, one year later, almost half of participants were still in the plan, 48%. Two years later, that was still in the low 40s, and three full years later, that was still in the upper 30s. So more than a third of participants, three years after retirement, are still in the plan. Then we asked that same question of 2017 retirees, 2018 retirees, and 2019 retirees, and every single year, that number continued to increase. As a matter of fact, 2019 retirees, one year later, almost 60% of them still had their money in the plan, right? So that's there's something going on there. We don't know whether that's strategic choices being made or they just haven't gotten around to it. Do you think that could be... Do you think that could be influenced by just the pandemic and people being freaked out and being like, I'm not moving my money anywhere in the midst of? Not really. Because if you think of, if you think about it, 2016, one year later, that was 2017. So, right. So these trend lines started in 2017. 2019 did uptick a little bit. So that could be pandemic related because that was the year of 2020 where those people didn't move their money. But it's it's clearly bigger than that. Right. And we did ask. But through our, so you, you might see a, you might see a spike this given the, the, the pandemic, but I think we're already seeing that back out trend trend. You're starting to see each year more one year out. Let's say more people are keeping money in the plan, which you would expect then two years out and three years out that trend to increase as well. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we can't look at 2019 because it's only been one year, but if you look at 17, 18, we're, we're up almost 50% of the participants are still on the plan two years later and you're in the 40% three years later. 40% of participants, three years after retirement, still on the plan. We did ask through our retirement savings and spending survey if, if there was a good retirement income generating investment option in your plan, would you stay? And baby boomers said yes 70% of the time. Gen Xers said yes 6% of the time. And millennials said yes 80% of the time. So there's something going on here, right? Now, you mentioned earlier the one final contextual thing before the interest level at the plan sponsor, right? So large market plan sponsors 
50% of them said they would prefer that their participants remain in plan with their balance post-retirement. Half. I did not expect the number to be that. Only 5.7% said that they would prefer it roll over to a In the small market, so under $500 million plans, it was still 30%. 30% of plan sponsors said, I'd prefer they stay in the plan. So again, that's very different than I thought it would be. I thought those numbers would be far smaller than that. What we did find was that 38% and 35% respectively, large market and small market, said they didn't really have a preference. But what I would counsel advisors and consultants to start working with their plan sponsors on is, let's let's figure out whether that indifference is lack of a strategy or they really are indifferent. Because I think given the SECURE Act and given other focuses from the DOL, having a good solid fiduciary management process and a good prudent process for helping decide whether you're keeping it in plan or letting the rollover IRA market serve them, which has done very effectively over the last decades, have a plan, right? So that's the contextual backdrop. I think the framework, I, I love the idea of talking about this, Josh. We, we could spend a whole nother podcast on that, I believe. Here's the one thing that I think we have to get across first, right? Before we even get into the framework, we have seen the benefit of one default decision, one blunt force instrument from the PPA by negatively electing people into a target date fund and every single person got the same answer, right, based on your age. Uh, and that has worked so well for the average 25-year-old and how much the trajectory has changed in the last 15 years in the DC business. We can't take the same single answer blunt force instrument approach to retirement income solutions. The average 60-year-old's financial picture is much more heterogeneous than your average 25-year-old's more homogenous view. And, and so if we think about that, we've got to start thinking about retirement income not being synonymous with a single product type, whether it's guaranteed or not. you got to think about it as a journey, right? We've got to wrap up tools like Social Security tools and dedicated communications about how to pivot to a retirement income stream from the saving the right number mentality for the last 30 or 40 years of saving. And how do you then put the right investment products together in sequence? And so you mentioned, you know, the, the survey data came back and affirmed this. Most consultants and advisors, the first place to go on the retirement income solutions journey, and we agree, is making sure that the SWIP Make sure the plan documents are right and make sure the record-keeping plumbing is right so that a SWIP could be overlaid right on top of their assets and they could just simply, from a user experience, turn on that income replacement stream, right? That, that is job one. Could you just really quickly just SWIP? Just SWIP. Uh, no, sorry, systematic withdrawal. Systematic, systematic withdrawal, yeah. Yep, yep. So in other words, you know, how do I take all of the savings and pivot it to a retirement income replacement, whether that is a paycheck that comes bi-weekly or monthly or quarterly or annually, but make that a simple so instead of a lump, instead of a lump sum, instead of, instead of a lump sum, that creating flexibility where I can get my, you know, my regular recreate my paycheck instead of right. know, having whether it's the 4% mentality and I'm going to tap that and get that on a regular basis or it's more on an ad hoc and as needed basis. I was surprised to hear from a lot the, of Go ahead. Sorry. 
Well, I was going to say, I was really surprised to hear from these consultants and advisors that there's still a lot of planned documents out there that still need to be cleaned up that don't allow for ad hoc and, and partial withdrawals. We, we got to get that fixed, right? I mean, that just seems like for those of us that are thinking retirement income constantly, that, that seems like work that should be done. I know it's not. We've got to get focused on business. And that's the lowest hanging fruit, quite frankly, you know, in terms of like, that's the easy stuff, you know. To, to be able to do, assuming that the, the document provider, you know, has the flexibility to be able to do those things, which I mean, this is, you know, th- this is like some of the other solutions are like trying to cure cancer, you know, distribution methods is like treating the, you know, the common, the common cold. I don't even know if it's a, you know, a, a common cold. So that's the first place to start is, is there's actually quite a bit of probably value add for advisors and consultants by being able to go back and initiate that conversation with committees to say, hey, let's take first pass. Let's take a look at the plan document and let's evaluate these distribution methods and let's figure out what we need to do to create flexibility and optionality within the plan so that if you have participants, to your point earlier, it's not a one size fits all approach. But for those that want to be able to kind of leverage that withdrawal mechanism, there's there's a a way that they can do that mechanically within the plan. So that's kind of step one is the distribution methods. What's the next Kind of, uh, let's say, as an advisor consultant, I've solved that that with my plan sponsor clients. Where do I think about going next? Yeah, so I think there's there's three steps. So if you look at it from an investment standpoint, you first look in plan, right? In the plan today, there's going to be something that's likely to be a an appropriate retirement income solution for some subset of the participant base. Whether that's the actual QDIA, the target date fund, or the balanced account, or a managed account that's already a part of the lineup. Or our good old favorite, you know, kind of conservative investment stable value, which is often held in large part by older participants with larger balances. They're already comfortable with it as an investment product. How do you pivot your mindset on stable value as an offer as a specific component to a retirement income generating portfolio, not just a safe haven from a savings standpoint? So that's the first place you look. The second place you look is retirement income specific investments, right? There's lots of innovation out there in the marketplace today. We at T. Rowe started in the managed payout space. Many firms have. Not a guaranteed solution, but something that's targeting a 3 or a 4 5% payout. And we'll even include return of principal in order to maintain that level of continuity of distribution. So the income, the paycheck and retirement can be somewhat stabilized. Or some kind of guaranteed solution, whether it's a QLAC or whether it's a deferred annuity or whether it's an immediate annuity. Or there's other, you know, innovations. They're like bond ladder and kind of target maturity types of products. Lots of innovation in that space. That's the second category. And then ultimately, I think the third category is where a lot of the managed account players get people to go. Can we manage accounts with a specific dedicated retirement income solution to them? Of the managed account providers I've talked to today, most of them aren't focused on that element of it yet. They're getting closer as they're getting more and more comfortable with older and older participants. But the more participants stay in plan in the retirement phase, the more plan sponsors are designing their plans to be such. I think we're going to, have to think about how does that managed account solution become a custom solution with an income generating outcome rather than just a, a savings outcome. 
And then there's always the rollover IRA market will continue to be a very effective place where people are going to get the guidance they need from the right advisor. And we know, especially as the convergence continues to happen between wealth and retirement, there's going to be forces at play that are going to make that look like more of a level transaction. The DOL is going to require it, right? The Reg BI and the fiduciary rule and those forces are all at play there. Now, that said, that journey from an investment standpoint, part of our framework is getting people to think about income preferences and the risks they're trying to manage. I don't know that we have time to go into that completely here. I'll I'll defer that to you, Josh, but getting the right kind of questions to be asked by the personas, the older participants, so you start to get a sense of whether people are worried more about income yield or income duration or income volatility or or asset preservation. That's a really empowering conversation for advisors to have with plan sponsors about where to take those conversations with their plan sponsor clients. Yeah, I think that's a, and, and I think what, what this, as we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about that because one of the things that came out and, and, you know, it's so important to figure out, you know, at the end of the day, participants have very little control over what types of solutions like over their retirement plan experience. At the end of the day, it is the, you know, it's the, the plan fiduciaries and really the, you know, the plan sponsor plan fiduciaries who are making, even if they've delegated and, and, you know, outsourced the investment selection and monitoring, ultimately they are still the architects of the plan and the retirement experience for their people and hopefully leveraging, you know, the best thinking of firms like T Row and, you know, Greenspring Advisors and, you know, a lot of these other consultants. But ultimately it's still up to the plan sponsor to, you know, make the decisions in terms of, you know, architecting the overall experience. And, you know, one of the things is that that there are no neutral decisions that we make. And one of the most important ones is the perception around what I would consider to be longevity risk versus volatility risk and having that conversation. So even thinking at a QDIA level, let's say, you know, how you approach that as a plan sponsor is going to have a really big impact in terms of how you select your QDIA. And then as we continue to evolve all these other, what's your retirement income framework that you're going to deploy for your, for your plan, you know, and longevity risk essentially just right. The, the, the risk of, running outliving your money as opposed to volatility risk, which I would consider to be more of, you know, the fluctuation in your portfolio. Too often participants, you know, they think that that, you know, 65, you look just look at life expectancies, you have a much longer the average person has a much longer time horizon than, you know, 65 years old. And so talk a little bit about T Row's approach to just longevity risk versus volatility risk. And how, because that, that's something that came up in terms of there seemed to be a lot of alignment between advisors, consultants, when they were surveyed around longevity risk and also, and plan sponsors around longevity risk, I think it was probably number, maybe number one or number two for plan sponsors. It was definitely number one for advisors and consultants. There seemed to be a lot of alignment from that perspective. I'm not sure though that we've seen maybe advisors, consultants do as good a job engaging clients around, well, what does that really mean? And if if we are concerned about longevity risk, when, as we were planning for this, you know, I mentioned that, you know, people will tell you the truth through their actions much more than their words. And so I'm not sure the advisor community has done a good job framing the discussion around not just longevity risk, but in light of that, if we believe that's 
that's the highest risk. How are we going to solve for the, that? So maybe talk a little bit about T. Rowe's approach and how you guys think about longevity risk. And because of that, how does that inform what you guys do? Yeah, uh, Josh, that's that, that's a great, uh, an area I love to talk about. Um, so a, as those of us that know T. Rowe from our product offering, our target date suite, you also probably know that we're often sold against as one of the more equity aggressive glide that those decisions are constantly reviewed. And actually, we just made some fundamental changes to those products in the last year because we are studying behavioral aspects of people in retirement plans. And we're studying ultimately the, the largest risk that needs to be managed, which is people achieving the right level of funding status for the retirements, right? You mentioned this, your average 65-year-old could face a, you know, a 30-year retirement. Let's make sure that's a positive experience. I think it's a 50% chance that one of a married couple of 65 is going to live to be 94. So we we think about that constantly, right? We were quite pleased to see, and I would counter back to you, Josh, that I think you as an advisor and your your peer group have done a a nice job in helping plan sponsors see the long range implications of the stewardship of the DC assets while they them because both groups, both consultants and advisors in the survey and plan sponsors back and said longevity risk was the number one risk they're trying to manage above and beyond behavioral risk, above and beyond downside risk, above and beyond volatility risk. All of those are important. And every time the market goes through a plummet like it did in the summer, we feel that pain because we know in the short term, our products are probably going to look worse but we still know that over the long haul, 10 years plus, 15 years plus, 20 years plus, we're constantly in the number one position because of the decisions we're making and the course that we stay. And I think that now people are seeing that, right? I mean, we've gotten better at helping participants not jump ship in the storm. I think we've also got having planned sponsors, you know, maybe you know, the rudder's a little deeper, the the tills held on to little tighter to use a shipping or a sailing analogy so that people can stay the course. So we don't discount the anxiety and the answering to retirement committees that come with short-term market volatility and the fact that downside risk and volatility are real and need to be managed. But longevity risk always floats to the top when you literally empirically measure the impact that has the biggest long-term benefit or risk on participants. And why do we create retirement plans to begin with to fund retirement, right? So I'll pause there. Well, one, I thought you were going to throw another hockey analogy at me. You, you switched gears on me and you went shipping. Like <laughs> you've been doing hockey analogies the, the, the whole podcast. So you threw me a little bit of a curveball there to throw a baseball analogy in there. You know, but I, I, I do think that that longevity risk is, and actually, as I think more about this, certainly if we do transition and we see more plan sponsors want to keep post-retirement assets in the plan, they have to be thinking about longevity. If the goal is like, hey, we want to get people to 65, they retire, we want them to get their money out and be on their way, then maybe volatility risk is something more important because, you know, from that plan sponsor perspective, it's all what they're trying to solve for. But, you know, certainly as life expectancies are, are expanding and, you know, kind of the savings crisis that we have, I, I do think more and more plan sponsors need to... I'm not surprised. I was actually pleased in reading the data that longevity risk is perceived as the the, the biggest risk. And, you know, it's all about trade-offs, right? And I think that's kind of the point that you're making, certainly from T. Rowe's perspective is, you know, if the 
if what we're trying to do is optimize against longevity risk, then the trade-off is that we're going to have to have some more exposure to investments that are going to create more volatility risk. So you can't, you know, you can't really have, you can't solve for long necessarily for longevity risk easily without without taking on some equity risk. And, and perhaps, you know, over time, and, and I think, you know, maybe with the SECURE Act, maybe what you begin seeing is and is the ability, and I think this is likely, is how do you start within, call it target date funds or QDIAs, maybe what you start to do is you start to figure out a way to get some guaranteed income in there where you can kind of barbell it, where, hey, we can, we can synthesize some, you know, some protection which is going to allow us to kind of maybe take on some more equity risk because we've, you know, and, and that's, that's just the evolutions I think that will take place, you know, in the coming, hopefully years within the industry. As we wrap up, and, and this has been a great discussion, I really appreciate your insights. And, and like I said, we will link to a lot of the resources because I think T. Rowe has done a really good job in terms of creating good insights and thought leadership and and in a way that that can help inform the advisor consultant community which in turn can inform the plan sponsor community which ultimately has you know the impact on who we all serve which is the participant what is so that this podcast is all about making ERISA fiduciary smarter so what would be your one piece of advice if you were speaking to an ERISA fiduciary what would be your one piece of advice to you know help them become smarter and better at their job well, it, since we're closing on having kind of spent time talking about retirement income, I'm going to close with some comments there. You you mentioned earlier that there's really no neutral decisions being made. There's influences on every decision. I would say to the advisors and the consultants that are that are out there listening to this is I'd start by just thinking about your inherent business model and, and reflect on whether or not as retirement income in plan really does continue to gain traction. Is there any inherent biases in your business model, right? Do you do you not play in the role of IRA space? So then you're just solely focused on, you know, trying to accelerate DC and plan. Nothing wrong with that. Just be aware of that. If you're in one of these firms that's both a wealth and a retirement business, and you can benefit from either side of that transaction, hopefully you've already started to think about this. But make sure you've got the right due diligence and prudence around that process so you can guide plan sponsors and participants to make the right transaction and make it on the right data and show the pre and post transaction kind of fees and services, et cetera. Or if you're on just the, you know, kind of IRA rollover side, just be aware that the competitive landscape is changing greatly. And I think it will change dramatically over the next five to 10 years in the DC plan space could could change some flows for you that you would otherwise not be ready for. So I, I'd say think about your business model and, and be very concerned about where some of these changes are coming from. I did hear from a very, very senior leader in the halls of Congress not a year ago that they personally still didn't want to call a DC plan a retirement plan. They would only refer to it as a savings plan until we figured out the retirement income distribution side of things, and then they call it a retirement plan. So make no bones about it. Most of the of the regulators and the legislators in Washington feel there is a right answer here, and that is that DC plans need to play a more active role on the retirement income side of things. Whether we agree with that or not, I guarantee that is a fact. So just be aware of that and you know, think about your business plan and your strategy moving forward with that as a, as a contextual backup. 
I think that is a great way to end and wrap up. Michael, it's been a pleasure. I thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and providing your insights. And for people that want to stay connected with you or follow T-Row, where, where can they, what's the best way to do that? Where can they go to, to stay up to date on what you guys are up to? Yeah, we're very active on LinkedIn. We're also very active on Twitter. They can obviously go to trowprice.com. We have an advisor-centric site. We have an institutionally oriented site and we also have a direct to investor site. So, you know, whatever it will, it will ask them to validate the user type and the customer type they are when they come to our website. Well, thank you so much. And as we enter this holiday season, stay safe. Thanks again. Thank you, Josh. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and have a better idea about emerging trends facing both retirement plan advisors and plan sponsors. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula, and fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk, and unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.